Hey, Real Talk listeners, welcome back. We are doing a bit of a series with Michelle and I. We are going to kind of talk about the biggest challenges HR departments face. And we talked a little bit about this already this year, but we are going to continue momentum. So, hey, Michelle, how's it going? Like, what is going on and facing the HR departments these days? A couple of the topics we are constantly talking about. So we decided this time to kind of skip those. I don't think we're not going to skip them. We'll talk about all of them, some of the biggest challenges, but we're going to dig into three in particular. Definitely talent is a big one. Attracting talent, keeping talent. In fact, you know, I, I think often we kind of bucket talent in that place of focusing more on how you get them. Um, What we're seeing now is really just the how you keep them. So not only is it hard now to get them, but it's hard to keep them as well. So we talk about that one a lot. We've had a lot of really great folks come on that are part of the recruiting world to really dig into that and talk about what you can do as an employee looking for a job, but also what you can do as a company looking for great employees. But what you're going to find or what we're consistently finding is that many of the other issues contribute to that root kind of desire. I would call it a root cause problem, but um, it's really, at this point, it's a desire to attract and retain. And so a lot of the other things that are popping up around that contribute to, um, in my mind, that underlying desire to get the right talent, whether it is really understanding the impact of diversity in the workforce, equity in the workforce, whether it is reassessing how you can deliver the customer experience with potential limitations and changes in your staff or your store hours. It could be that employee value proposition. You know, when I think about branding for a company, I always think about two aspects of branding. That first aspect, which is, should be visible to anyone, whether they're an employee or not. It's the reviews that people read about you on Glassdoor. It is the message on your external website. It's the things that you communicate on social media. It's the image that you're putting out there that make people pause and say, hey, that sounds like a a fun place. You and I often talk about this in relationship to slightly more progressive companies like Zappos or even what Google does to attract a certain type of employee to their business is they let you know the things like the meditation rooms and bringing your dog to work and there's a ping pong table. Those things don't always retain employees. They can contribute to it. But what they do is they paint an image of what it's like to work for that place. And then you become interested in what it would feel like to work for that place. So in my mind, I call that piece marketing 
and branding versus employee value proposition. Because if you think about it, it's what every commercial tries to do as well, right? They try to lay out this idea that if you buy this particular car, your life will be better. And so they try to lay it on to make you interested. You come in, take a test drive, and then hopefully the car lives up to the to the reputation. It's sort of the same thing when you're trying to get your message out there. So there's that one aspect of branding or marketing your company, but then there's the actual employee experience. And when it comes to the employee experience, it's the thing that helps you retain them and it helps you keep them. It is a big strategy and it goes well beyond just what happens within HR. It is how people are coached, whether or not they're provided feedback, whether or not they get development opportunities, right? It's all of that. It is whether or not a department leader makes you work through lunch at your laptop versus letting you actually step away. And so it's that employee experience that drives keeping people. We've talked about the employee experience here, but I mean, in the greater we, the HR community, it has been a huge topic for probably five years, Um, maybe a little bit more than that. And we see a lot of folks really saying, what is our employee experience? But the truth is, we don't always pause and think about every aspect of their experience with your organization from the moment you send them onboarding documentation until potentially the moment that you offboard them or they terminate their employment with the organization. Because truthfully, it's in that offboarding part where people get frustrated and go on Glassdoor and start talking stuff. And so how do you look at that overall experience, everyone they're interacting with, everyone that will impact their lives, what communication looks like, what the leaders are going to do in their roles, what it's like to work in peer groups or teams within the organization, and how all of that comes together to support an experience that keeps people coming back. Okay, that was a lot of words, Maria. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the entire, you know, when you're taking a look at the employee life cycle, it's literally the entire internal life cycle, the can not the candidacy process, but the moment they get onto the or into the organization and on board, I think it's really critical for us to kind of think through and talk through how you clearly define and communicate what that entire experience looks like. And I think, like you said, it's how you treat every person from the moment they walk into the door to also stepping out of the door. And I think people miss that last part because they're like, they've already left. But it doesn't matter because bad PR is bad PR in a world of social media these days. You do not want someone being like, they could care less. You know, they let me go. They didn't let me sustain my two weeks. They walked me out. I wasn't even going to a competitor. It's literally how you treat them on the way out that shows their value and worth in the organization, no matter how long they've been with the organization. I mean, 
long tenure is a thing of the past. Like these days, new generations are flipping between, you know, one and a half to two plus years, right? So you need to still value your employees' work as much as someone who's been with a company 20 years. Now, granted, you do some extra things for people who have invested time and effort into your organization for a very long time, but that's something to even consider. So, Michelle, how do how do organizations begin to clearly define, you know, I, I know we can talk through communicating, but I feel like that's the second step. How do they just get the foundation and start to begin to clearly define that employee experience? It boils down to the the idea that there are there are two aspects of the employee experience that provide the biggest challenge when defining what this experience should look like. And I'm going to call it wide and subjective. Okay, so the first part of it you just talked about, which is it is everything. It is everyone they touch. It is everyone they associate with. It is so broad that it should encompass potentially every part of your organization. How, if if you have a maintenance department that is responsible for the ins and outs and ensuring that things run like the critical things like break rooms or restrooms, the parking lot is clearly defined, easy, easily accessible. It's making sure you understand that while a department like maintenance might feel like it's behind the scenes, what they do contributes to how I see this organization performing internally, right? And so I think that's one of the first challenges is that we don't go broad enough. We think about the easy things. What did we do to onboard them? Did we give them the training they needed? Did we introduce them to their leader, who is their peer group? And then even to your point, we often don't even think about the offboarding process other than to make sure that we have legally uh, crossed our T's and dotted our I's in that process. So we don't think about what it feels like to go through it. I think another part that makes that broadness difficult is you have to think about this from a place of how it feels, not just, are we doing our jobs? For example, I have in a previous organization that that I worked with that had multiple sites that we've worked with that had multiple locations and multiple sites. I went into one site and truthfully, other than the person I was meeting, uh, which was part of the HR team, No one actually knew who I was, but I went into one site and every single person that I walked past between the entrance to get to the HR area interacted with me in some way, whether it was to say hello or welcome, whatever that happened to be. Same company, different location. And I just felt uncomfortable being in that place because it was clear that they didn't know who I was, but instead of doing something about it or saying hello anyway, I was treated as an outsider that wasn't welcome. And that was from people that I was not directly interacting with. And so that's what I mean by 
it's broad and you've got to address the feelings. Do I think that they cared? Do I think that they meant anything bad? No, I don't. But it didn't change the fact that I just walked into one location and received what I perceived as a warm welcome to their site. And then I walked into a second location and people behave completely different. That showed up in my conversations and my recap of my experience when when we closed that transaction with that particular employee. And so it shows up when employees leave. I'm gonna pause before we go back to offer you guys some solutions. And I wanna talk about the second challenge is it is subjective. The reality is people are different and they want different things. And as a result of that, if you have a group of people that are helping you walk through the employee experience, you want to make sure that you're including a diverse group within that. Now, there is definitely diversity within the HR department. However, keep this in mind. Typically, People who join the HR department are already focused on making things great for employees, right? So they typically have one line of thought on what good looks like based on what industry trends are saying. So if you want to be able to cover as much as possible in the employee experience, you're going to want to bring people from different departments and different aspects Ask them how they contribute to the employee experience. How do they see themselves playing a part in the success of the company? And then that will allow you to identify the subjectivity that comes along with this. And we've talked about this a lot, where you guys know from experience that Maria, or from listening to our podcast, that Maria and I talk a lot about rewards and recognition. And we're really quick to remind you that recognition for one can feel painful for another person. In fact, Marie, I'll use an example of diversity. You and I both had trips this weekend and they were both fun and overwhelming and sometimes stressful at the same time. And As a result of that, you needed to take a little bit of a break. I needed a different kind of break. I needed to be around people who knew me, where I didn't have to work hard to build new relationships. So I surrounded myself by people all weekend, but it needed to be my people that knew me already. So it didn't feel like I was starting small talk from scratch. And so because of that subjectivity, You've got to bring in a diverse group of people if you're ever going to address all the needs. Now, having said that, I do want to add this, Maria, before I throw it back to you. You're never going to address everyone's needs. Okay. So when you look at an organization and you try to build kind of that standard, what we tend to have or what organizations tend to have is a group of, and it's a small group of early adopters or overachievers and they're on board for anything, right? They're, they're going to be there right away. And then you have a group that feel like they're, they're often called resistors where they struggle. They need extra support. 
And then you've got that group in the middle who's trying to make a decision on whether or not they're going to be a resistor or they're going to be a supporter. And the problem is we tend to build our strategies for the resistor group because we're like, if we can get the resistors on board, we'll be set. No, they're the smallest group. They're smallest of all of those groups. And you're investing all of your energy into that group. So what you really need to do is ask yourself, what does it take to get that 60% that's on the fence to be on your side or to be in agreement with? And so building it, that's, I mean, it's the reason that the entire world has a bell. It's the reason that that concept is invented is you've always got outliers that are either super for or super against. And then you've got the people in the middle who are just sort of, okay, get those people, build it for those people, and your resistors will either get on board, pretend they're on board, or get out. So, Michelle, I'm going to challenge you a bit because... Most companies will identify this through an employee engagement survey. So how, and I know you've said in the past, you are not a fan of these surveys. So how do you identify, clearly identify where your bell curve sits so that you can obtain that information and begin clearly defining this? Okay, so many people, particularly those that are trying to find the fastest and cheapest way to make this happen are not going to appreciate my answer. And guess what? I don't care Um, because my answer is true. You have to talk to people, but you have to talk to people in a way that they are allowed to be open and honest. Okay, so I'm gonna put it out here. You can disagree with me all day long, I will do an independent survey right now of organizations all over the world, and I will ask them two simple questions. Do you have confidence in an employee engagement survey? Do you have confidence in your privacy? Do you ever provide negative feedback in an employee experience? And I guarantee, I guarantee I can prove that I'm right and you are wrong. (laughs) There's some of you out there that have organizations that truly do have open door policies where your employees can come to you and they can tell you when something is broken. They can tell you what they want fixed. They can give you any kind of feedback and you're open for that. However, when you start to add layers of leadership within an organization, it has been proven over and over and over again that The telephone game does not work. And while you think as a top-level leader that because the people that report to you feel confident being open and honest with you, that everyone in the company would feel the same, get a grip. It isn't true. They don't all feel the same because it is subjective based on who a person directly reports to. Over and over again, employees will tell us in HR that their biggest concern is the person they report directly to, because that's the person that will ultimately ask to have them hired, fired, give them a bad raise, write them up, et cetera, right? Okay, 
I'm going to stop trying to defend my argument <laughs> that people are not honest on employee engagement surveys. They are not honest. I have been honest twice in my life. And it is because I knew that I had another job waiting and that if there were repercussions, it wouldn't matter because I was on my way out anyway. The only two times I've been very honest in my feedback. Okay, now I'm going to defend employers and not employees. Two, feedback in employee engagement surveys is typically limited. It is often starts limiting me to um, a score versus being able to have an actual conversation where you can interpret feelings and underlying messages. You don't get that opportunity with a survey and it makes it harder for you as an employer to understand the nuances of what an employee might be saying. What does a three mean? In my world, I very rarely give people a 10. Um, if you've ever taken those like customer experience surveys, because I don't think anybody's perfect. Anyone nowhere ever. So I'm likely to probably give most people in a great experience an eight. Yet they're, they see a 10 as a great score, right? And so what does your a three actually mean? Does it mean you're an A? An employee engagement survey, because that's what we tell people in performance reviews. And so they're often set up in a way that the employer doesn't get to truly understand the intricacies of why an employee put what they put in a survey. They are more than often said to be um, confidential in most organizations. They are confidential. I say more than often because I'm sure there are smaller organizations that don't have the luxuries of outsourcing things like that. So they might actually do internal engagement surveys. But now, because you've built that level of confidentiality, your only follow-up is to have a big team meeting where you get to address some of the comments and hope that as a group, they're willing to share them with you. You can't actually follow up with me and say, hey, Michelle, I noticed that you said you feel like there's um, favoritism within the department when it comes to tasks and responsibilities. Can you give me more about that? So in defense of lawyers are generic enough that it's hard to do a lot with it anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do? Here's what you do. First of all, it's probably not someone within your organization unless you have a really well-defined HR department that is seen as a department where people can go to with issues. Now, everything's they can go to HR with issues, but what we've heard particularly in some of the organizations we've interacted with, Maria, is that I can tell HR anything, but they don't really do anything about it. Now, I'm always one to defend the HR department. It's usually not that we can't, uh, that we don't do anything about it or we don't want to do anything about it. Sometimes it's that hands are tied or it's an issue that can't be changed. It's something that has to be addressed by a leader in non-HR department, and a leader is unwilling to do that. But 
When you set up your HR department as the place that someone can go to, there is an expectation that if I am going to come to you with issues, you are going to help resolve them. And so if your employees don't see your support department as a place that resolves internal conflict, then your employees are not going to be completely honest with them either. So what I would first propose to you is that you temporarily bring someone in who is great at navigating um, employee engagement conversations in a variety of ways. You want to throw the survey out there just to get mass numbers, whatever, waste your money, do your thing. But make sure that you're hiring someone who is also comfortable doing roundtables, small group discussions, or even larger group meetings. A couple things happen both in small groups and in large groups. When you have a small group setting like a roundtable discussion, what you do is create a bit of intimacy where when one person, when one brave person feels comfortable sharing something, it starts to open up those other people and it's a small enough group that they can all share. Now, strategically, what you want to do in those meetings is work with, you would want that independent contractor, i.e. real talent, to come in and work with the supervisors within that department. Because what I would do is intentionally set up those meetings so that we had one of those folks in each of those sessions. You know, give me a list of people who are willing to ask questions and challenge the process when they feel like it's broken. That they do it thoughtfully and respectfully versus just complaining and making the workforce harder, right? And so now I have a group of people that I know when asking the right questions, they will share open and honest feedback. And by having that person within that group, I've now created an environment where six to 10 other people, and I would usually keep it under 10, are willing to also share that feedback. So that would be uh, the first thing. The other thing, larger group meetings, they're they're valuable in that you have multiple people who are willing to be honest just by sheer numbers. You're going to get multiple employees that challenge the process, which means you're likely to open up feedback faster. However, you're going to want to make sure that you have employed a contractor or an external uh, support company. Again, we do this for you, who can handle and navigate large conversations from two aspects. Two of the biggest challenges with really large group discussions, one, they can tend to get out of hand. And like if if you think of the mood of the group being a barometer, I mean, you can even relate this outside of the workforce. When you get a a group of people who are all arguing for the same thing, it often becomes out of control because the energy feeds on the energy. And so it can quickly go from an opportunity to collect feedback to an opportunity to frustrate your teams even more 
and you get no constructive information. And that's ultimately what you're going for. So you need to make sure that you've talked to someone who can navigate difficult and potentially intense conversations. And then the last piece of that is in a larger group, what tends to happen is your most outspoken people take control. And those within your group that would be willing to share if there were only six of us shut down because it's too much, it's frustrating, and I'd rather not share my constructive feedback that could be useful because this is making my head hurt. And as an introvert, I've comfortably slipped into that role of this is going nowhere. I'm not contributing because this is useless. And so once again, you need someone who can keep those emotions under control, but can politely shut an extrovert who is complaining down to allow the quieter people in the room to also have a voice. Because again, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier is you have to think about the employee experience as how it feels. And if you're someone in a group that feels like you weren't allowed to provide your feedback, the response is going to be the same that we hear over and over again, which is I didn't have a choice or I don't have the opportunity to share my thoughts or nothing is done with the thoughts that I share. You know, we hear those always is no change happens or I don't feel like I have the opportunity to be honest. So it's a lot. I'm going to sum it up really quick, Maria, by saying two really great ways to get feedback. It needs to often be done with someone external to your organization, someone who has a skill set for facilitating conversations. And when I use the word facilitating, I truly mean this from a perspective of having no influence on the conversation. So we often use the word facilitator when we talk about trainers within a company. Those facilitators have an agenda. As that external party, their only agenda should be to collect the feedback that they receive, not to sway it, not to provide rebuttals for it, but to collect the feedback that'll make you be successful and make sure that they are able to successfully navigate small group conversations as well as larger group conversations. So now that you have that data, how do you clearly communicate what the employee experience is and the actions you're taking to the organization? Is it newsletters? Is it an email? Is it a town hall? Is it small leadership huddles? What is the best strategic advice there? Why do you keep getting me in trouble on this podcast? Because once again, <laughs> those of you that want fast and cheap are not going to like my answers <laughs> because it would be all of the above. You know, one of the things that tends to happen with communication is as leaders, we behave, not all of us, just making a generalization here on that. Remember that curve, the bell curve talking about that greater percent, we tend to assume that we can announce or make a proclamation, if you will, and that suddenly everyone was on board. Guess what? With a proclamation, you're going to get all of your early adopters to be on the same page with you because guess what? They would have been on the same page with you regardless of how you communicated it. 
because that's what they do. They are your cheerleaders and they go, go team, yay, hoorah, okay? You need to worry about the people that aren't sure yet. And people are often not sure unless they have an opportunity to ask questions or dig a little deeper. And you cannot effectively ask questions with a global email newsletter or update on your internet, intranet site. Um, How do I get to ask questions in that case? Um, So what you have to do is build your communication strategy around the fact that all of these groups of people are going to need a different level of interaction. Doesn't mean everybody has to participate in everything. What you can do is start opening them up so that people can opt in or opt out. I would not let people opt out for all of them. If you're gonna do a company town hall, that's an all town hall. It means you show up unless there's a good reason for you not to be at work. If your leaders are going to hold group huddles, that's a group huddle. It's a time to bond as a smaller team within the organization. That's an all people show up kind of moment. But maybe you're going to have some roundtables where you can not only allow people to ask questions, but also collect more feedback. Like, how is it working? We've been doing this for 30 days now. Do you have any more questions? Have you seen any changes? Those things, again, happen in certain settings and a company newsletter is not that setting. Once again, this is one of those places where I would say um, if you have a communications department, you've got to bring them in and get them involved. If you have an HR or a learning and development department, I would encourage you to get them involved as well. I would not just give a list of bullets to your average leader and say, go talk about this. You want to set them up with questions as well as enough information so that when they get questions, they can provide answers or feedback. Last thing. So all of the above is how you can communicate it. But the last thing is you've got to start top down in smaller settings where people are allowed to ask questions, particularly when it comes to your frontline leaders. Your frontline leaders are usually the group of leaders in your organization that have the highest headcount reporting to them, okay? Means they impact and their message impacts the greatest number of people within your organization. Um, Typically at that C-level, That CEO is probably going to have a handful of people. The COO, a handful of people. As you go down to that frontline leader, in a lot of organizations, you're looking at a 30 to 40 to 1 ratio. Um, I've been in organizations where it's 100 to 1 on multiple shifts. And what tends to happen is we make sure executives, senior leaders are well-informed. But when we come to that last level, those frontline leaders or even that first level of multi-unit leaders, they don't get the same level of detail. And yet, once again, they're impacting on average 30 employees for every leader. 
if the leader is only provided a bullet point um, or a series of bullet points, they're going to fill in the blank. It's what humans do. So if I say, hey guys, we're announcing a new benefits program to make sure that our teams are healthy. And they go, oh, what is it? Well, more information is going to come out soon. It's going to, it's going to have exercise stuff. Maybe, maybe discounts to gyms. They're going to fill in the blanks because people need to move forward with no gaps in their knowledge. And so what that means is they fill in the gaps based on their experience. And we've talked about that before. So there you have it. Top down, please stop ignoring your frontline leaders. They need to be as intimately aware as all of the other levels. But I'm going to provide an example of how you can do this effectively using a real situation that we've handled here at Real Talent. We had an organization who wanted to completely change the performance review process. Uh, they were moving from a cost of living increase to an actual merit-based increase associated with a profit-sharing aspect. However, all of the leaders within the organization, um, at least half of them, promoted internally. So they hadn't worked externally where it had been a performance-based review before. They grew up at this company and all they were aware of is every year I get 3%. That's the way it works or whatever that percentage was. And so not only did we need them to understand how the system works, how you went in and provided feedback and what good feedback looked like. Trust me, that part was hard. But we also needed them to align on what good looked like, what a one looked like versus what a four might look like. We needed them to align on how they were going to share that information with their employees and what a good conversation looked like. And what could have been a trial and error, they could have said, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll struggle through it the first year. By the next year we do this, it'll be good, turned into a series of workshops. Um, we brought in the HR team. We made sure that every single person on the HR team was completely aligned. That meeting was held together. As a part of that, that meeting, we brought in um, with the HR team, we brought in senior leadership to make sure that the senior leadership or the HR team's business partner was on the same page. So we wanted the leader and the HR team to be in the same place. And then from there, those leaders together with their HR business partner held meetings for three straight weeks where they practiced over and over again. They practiced writing really great performance statements, whether it was constructive or positive. Um, they practiced having conversations. But it started by bringing in that larger group and then ensuring that every single leader in the organization attended one of those workshops so that we were all on the same page. Yeah, and I think it's important that everybody is on the same page, uh, that they're all working together and the activities align to what employees need for their employee experience. So Michelle, kind of wrapping up here, what are some, like, some of the biggest takeaways or things to consider 
from the employee experience and really beginning that process? Because I don't think we even got into everything post the communication and starting the action plan, right? But what are some big takeaways for our listeners? So the big thing is you've got to understand the extent of involvement when it comes to the employee experience. So bring in a diverse group of people from multiple departments on multiple shifts if you run more than one shift and just start to brainstorm what all areas of our organization have an impact on how the employee sees our organization. And then when you've created that that kind of that brainstorming list, that should help you avoid what Maria talked about earlier, which is missing some of the key pieces of what impacts that experience. I love a foosball machine like the next person I'm telling you. I don't give a crap if you have one in my workplace. (laughs) Frankly, I care more that you give me the opportunity to work from home with some flexibility or shift my hours based on my need. And so by bringing in that large group of people, you're going to get, you're going to make sure that you cover everything that matters from how the office is set up, whether it's cubicles or open or what is that called when you don't get an assigned cubicle and you just float to whatever's open? That is the most annoying thing on the planet. Yeah. I, I, well, some offices call it hotel desks. Stop it. It's stupid. Stop it. <laughs> People come with stuff or even organizations that because they want an open concept or a hotel concept, you are limited what you can bring. You know what? I want a picture of my family on my desk. Let me have a freaking picture of my family on my desk because I spend a lot of time here and it's nice to have a reminder that some people out there love me, okay? So I want it. So it really does start with, I know I got on a tangent there. It really does start with defining every aspect of what makes up the employee experience. That's the first thing I want them to take away. You got to get that nailed. And then you've got to find a truly honest way to collect feedback because the experience is going to be different for every person. It is automatically going to be different just because they work in different departments for different leaders and they have different teammates. You're already going to get some diversity in that, but you've got to address the overarching needs of your people. And it could be across the board. And that goes back to even, Maria, what you brought up about the different types of communication. It's another really good reason that you've got to always plan multiple types of communication is because people have different needs. So get those two things started. Bring in the right support to help you because tough conversations are hard. People do not like to be confrontational. They like to avoid pain and being honest with you about the things they don't like about your company is painful. Um, So bringing in an external group can often open that up so that you get better feedback. That's my advice. Three things. Wide, subjective, bring somebody else in so you get the truth. 
Love it. Well, you heard it first from Michelle through all of her passions of each one of these categories. Make sure you're changing or taking a look at your employee experience quite frequently and how people are perceiving it. And that is all for us today. Until next time, take care. Bye, everyone.